We're in uh, Acts, reading in Acts chapter 4, and we had read previously how Peter and John had been arrested, arrested for doing a good deed of, of praying that a man would be healed, and he was healed. And now that they were arrested by the, the Sadducees, the chief priests, which were the Sadducees, and we went through the, the list of them last time, We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 4, reading from verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were, who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? And we looked at last time how, how contemptible that statement really was, because in the Greek, the last word in there is, is uh, the last word in there is you. How has this been done by people like you? And also the word power there doesn't speak anything of a divine power. It's by what magic or what incantation in what name of magic or incantation has this been done by people like you? That's the accusation. And then it says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no, other, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So it says in verse 8 that, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, the filling of the Holy Spirit happens on multiple occasions to people. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to us when we receive the Lord and the Lord comes into our life. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the filling of the Holy Spirit happens on multiple occasions. And that is a filling for a particular need. And that is when God comes and fills us for whatever task He has for us specifically to do. And it is good to believe in the filling of the Holy Spirit, because then we can walk in it. Remember, we receive things by faith. If we don't believe, we don't receive. And God fills us with anointings. God fills with the power of the Holy Spirit. What is your ministry? What is your gift? What does He have for you? Believe that God can fill you by the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that work. Walk in disbelief and you will walk in defeat. Says Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. So he is addressing now the Sanhedrin. So you've got the Sanhedrin, 71 people, the high priest being the, the, uh, one of them, and then 70 other elders and leaders and scribes make up the Sanhedrin. And he's addressing now the Sanhedrin, but it's also being done in public. All trials, remember, were held in public, and they had waited till, till uh, uh, the daylight. They'd waited till the morning. They, they had to wait till after the morning sacrifice, which was after 9 a.m. And he's addressing now the rulers and the elders of the people. 
And in verse 9, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. And so Peter is calling the question. He says, you know, you're putting us on trial for doing a good deed. What's the issue with the trial? What is the crime that you are citing that we've done this good deed and you're bringing us before this trial? Because no crime has been so, so specified. There's no, been no crime specified here. So how can they be put on trial? Remember, a trial, there were, there were to be accusations. And he says, what's the accusation here? For the benefit done to a, a, a lame man? And then he goes on. You want to know how he's been made well? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. So remember what they said. They said, tell us by what power and in what name this has been done by people like you. He says, you want to know the name? The name is Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. You want to know the power, the power, the same power that God raised him from the dead. That is the power, that is the name. So in that, he answers their, their very question. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. So God has now infilled him and he doesn't stop there. He says, he says and, and oh by the way, in verse 10, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified. You see how he just slipped that in there? That wasn't part of the question. Part of the question was by what power and in what name you have done this. The power is by the power who, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The name is Jesus Christ the Nazarene. By the way, He's the one whom you crucified. So what He does is He takes again and He pushes it right back at them. You crucified Jesus. And then after He had done this, He, he says... Whom God raised from the dead. Remember, the, the people who are bringing these accusations are not the Pharisees, or all, although the Pharisees make up part of the Sanhedrin. It says he was brought together by the chief priests, and, and, and by the chief priests, back in uh, uh, verse 1, it says, and they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard. Those were Sadducees. The Sadducees came and brought the accusations. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so he specifically says, whom God raised from the dead. So he takes this thing that they don't believe in the resurrection, and he says, whom God raised from the dead, and he brings it right back toward them. He says, it's in this name, and in this name, this man stands before you in good health. So in other words, not only has God taken care of his lameness, but he's in good health. He says that this man stands before you in good health. This man, not that man, but this man. That man the, the man who had been healed was standing with them, which tells us that he must have spent the night in jail with them too. And then he says in verse 11, He is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. So what does he do? He takes an Old Testament passage, and he says, Here now is the fulfillment of this, where... Jesus is the cornerstone, and you have rejected Him, and He became the chief cornerstone, and it's just like the Scriptures have said. He takes the Scriptures and He brings it right back at them. The Scriptures are fulfilled here, He says. You're seeing them fulfilled. You, the council, it is fulfilled in your presence. 
This is you. You are the rejectors. Remember who's on trial here. It's Peter and John. And what Peter does is he flips the whole thing over and he puts them on trial. He says, you are the ones. You are the ones who have crucified him. You are the ones who are the ones who rejected, just as as the scriptures said. You are the ones who have done this. And, And the scriptures are very clear. Scriptures are very clear about what's going on. You know, in, 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 if you look back, keep your finger there, but look back in Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21, it, it talks about this sort of thing happening. In Luke chapter 21, verse 12, it says, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you the utterances and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to, res- to resist or refute. So you see what he says. He tells them they're going to bring you before kings and governors. They're going to bring you, it, it, it says, before synagogues and pri- bringing you to synagogues and prisons. They just spent the night in the prison bringing you to kings and governors. So he tells them, when you're brought before kings and governors, when you're brought before a legal court, you're not going to have to prepare a legal brief. I'm going to give you the words that you need. Don't take it out of context like sometimes it is tempting to do that, oh, I didn't have time to prepare for that Bible study that I had to teach, uh, but God will give it to me because the Word promises me that. It doesn't promise that. And you'll be able to tell it doesn't promise that because as soon as you start teaching, you'll realize that the Holy Spirit is not that shallow. That it would have been much better had you prepared. And I've been there and I've done that and it doesn't work for that. You prepare for these things. This is very specific. When you get before a court of law, I'm going to fill you and I'm going to give you wisdom that you can't imagine. And this is what happens. Peter and John are on trial. He takes the thing and he flips it back and he puts them on trial. And he says, you are murderers. And God raised the one whom you crucified from the dead. And you are the ones that the scriptures talk about that rejected him. And then he goes on to say, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is it. It is in this name, the name of Jesus. Let us never forget this. Let us never forget that at the heart of our ministry is the salvation of souls and salvation is only, only in the name of Jesus. There is no other way. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved, except Jesus Christ the Nazarene. That is it. It is not Buddha. It is not Muhammad. It is not Krishna. It is Jesus. And you say, well, that's really dogmatic. It is not me. It is God. God is the one who can choose what is right and what is wrong. And he says, there is one way, and it is in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. And whenever you start thinking in your mind how big God's tent is and how everybody's kind of good and we're all all right, just remember what it says. In all of our thinking, in all of our musings, in all of our understandings, and in all of our intellect, let's be fair to what our text says. It says there is salvation in no one else. 
So no matter how orthodox a Jew is and how faithful they are to their practices, there is salvation in no one else. Judaism itself will save no one. There's salvation in no other name under heaven except Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the one whom God raised from the dead. That is it, and it is only in His name. And it is this gospel that we preach, and it is this gospel that brings salvation. It is this gospel that turns people to the Lord and makes the distinction between who knows the Lord and who doesn't. There's salvation only in His name. And we're exposed to all sorts of things in academia and, 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 and all sorts of great intellects and all these things that come around. But just remember, it is the simplicity and the purity of the gospel message that there is salvation in no other name under heaven. And you take all these, the, these great and these wise men that you will meet and these wise women who have all of these great things and you begin to analyze their lives and it falls apart. Begin to look at their lives and you see that there's nothing there without Jesus Christ and His life. And in Him only there is salvation. And the Bible testifies of this. In fact, I was reading just this morning in, in, by, by Charles Spurgeon. In, in this, he has this book called Lectures to My Students. And he's talking about the requirements to be a preacher, to be a pastor of a church. And so he's teaching these young men in his charge. And... and He's telling them, don't forget this message, this salvation message. And he says, remember the Lord's words by the prophet Jeremiah. They are very much to the point and should alarm all fruitless preachers. Quote, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words... Then they should have turned from their evil ways and from the evil of their doings. That's Jeremiah 23, 21 and 22. And then Spurgeon goes on and he says, It is a marvel to me how men continue at ease in preaching year after year without conversions. Have they no bowels of compassion for others? No sense of responsibility upon themselves? Dare they, by a vain misrepresentation of divine sovereignty, cast the blame on their master? Or is their belief... That Paul plants, Apollos waters, and God gives no increase. Vain are their talents, their philosophy, their rhetoric, and even their orthodoxy without the signs that follow. How are they sent of God who bring no men to God? Prophets whose words are powerless, sowers whose seeds all withers, fishers who take no fish, soldiers who give no wounds. Are these God's men? Surely it were better to be a mudraker and a chimney sweep than to stand in the ministry as an utterly barren tree. The meanest occupation confers some benefit upon mankind, but the wretched man who occupies a pulpit and never glorifies his God by conversions is a, is a blank, a blot, an eyesore, a mischief. He is not worth the salt he eats, much less his bread, and if he writes to newspapers to complain of the smallness of, of his salary, his conscience, if he has any, might well reply, and what you have is undeserved." Times of drought there may be, aye, and years of leanness may consume the former years of usefulness, but still there will be fruit in the main and fruit to the glory of God, and meanwhile the transient barrenness will fill the soul with unutterable anguish. Brethren, if the Lord gives you no zeal for souls, keep to the lapstone or to the trowel, but avoid the pulpit as you, as you, as you value your heart's peace and your future salvation." We must never forget this gospel message. 
that there is salvation in no other name. It is only in Jesus Christ that the message can come through. You want to see the conversion of men's hearts? You want to see men change? It is not in philosophy. It is not in orthodoxy. It is not in religion. It is in the power of Jesus Christ entering a person's life. Only that will change a man. Only that will turn a man. Look in, in, in John. Look in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20. And John tells us why he wrote the Gospel. He tells us in John, chapter 20, why he went ahead and wrote the Gospel. He said in John, chapter 20, verse 31, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's John chapter 20, verse 31. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. These things have been written so that we would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and in believing we have life in His name. There is life in nothing else. There is not life in education. There is not life in things of this world. It is in Jesus Christ and Him only. And then John goes on in his epistles, in 1 John, that were, that, that were then written several years later. So if you go to the, the epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, John tells us why he wrote then the epistles in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he wrote John's Gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing we would have life in His name. And then in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us he wrote the epistles so that they were written to those who believe in His name, in, in the na- who, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's written this so that we may know. He wrote the Gospel so that we would believe. He wrote the Epistles so that we would know that we have eternal life. And you can take this First John test. You know, um, we can't assume, we can't just assume that people, people automatically know the Lord just because, because uh, they're Christians. You know, they say the Christians that they automatically know the Lord. We can't assume that. We can't assume any of that. That uh, uh, these things are supposed to be tested. We're supposed to test these things to see if, see if they be true. See if they be true in our lives. In, in, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do you really believe? Have you come to the point to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God? There's salvation only in His name. Have you come to believe that? If you haven't come to believe that, he says, Test yourself now. Be careful. I'm telling you, there are many people that come before heaven's throne that thought they believed but never really believed. He says, I've written the epistles so that you would know that you have eternal life. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. I don't assume that people just know the Lord because they come to church. 
I don't assume that people just know the Lord because they come to Sunday school. It says, test yourself. Test yourself. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test? Is Jesus Christ really in there? Do you really believe that there is salvation only in His name? And then you can go ahead and take the First John test. Go back to First John chapter 5, or look at First John chapter 4, verse 20, for example. You can just take this epistle of First John and read through it and say, is this active in my life? This is the test. He wrote this so that we would believe. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom, is, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You know, I heard a lady who was very active in the church, not this church, another church, say, you know, start talking about somebody, and she said, I'll never forgive that guy. And I thought, you are crazy, lady. You are just crazy. How could you say such a thing? If you hate your brother, it says you cannot love God. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If you hate your brother, you cannot love God. And that's why you have to get in your heart and say, God... Give me forgiveness for this person. Even if this person has hurt me. And I'll tell you, I've counseled with women who have been raped, who have been sexually abused. They tell me, I could never forgive that guy. And I said, I'm not the one asking you to forgive him. It is God who is asking you. It is Him who hung on that cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is Him who said, forgive him. And the Scriptures clearly tell us that, that if we say... God forgive us, and we don't forgive our brother. God will not forgive us, the Scriptures say. We cannot love God and hate our brother. This is part of the First John test. You can take this epistle and just go through it verse by verse and say, is this real in my life? This is the test whether we are saved. We can't assume that. Take the test. Look in First John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father... Loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, whether we love God and observe his commandments. If there is not a desire in your heart to observe the commandments of God and to obey them, then you have to question whether you're passing the test. You say, this is kind of hard. It's not my test. I didn't make up this exam. Just handing it out. And I'm not the one who's going to grade it either. God's saying, you grade it and find out. Is there a desire to walk in the commandments of God because there's salvation in no other name except Jesus Christ? And this is the test, that you believe and that you know. And you test yourself to see if you really believe. By this we know that we observe His commandments. And for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. You know, I talk to, to young couples who are living together, and I say, you guys got to stop living together. And they come to church, and I think, what are you doing? You're crazy. Don't do this. Don't you believe in the commandments of God? Walk in them. Walk in them, unless indeed you fail the test. Verse 4, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You can overcome the world through your faith. 
Through your faith, you overcome the world. Without faith, you get beat up all the time. Go ahead, try it. Say, I'm not going to have any faith this day. It's going to be a miserable day. That, you know, all, all I have faith for is misery today. You're going to have a miserable day. But you pick up the banner of God to walk in His way, to walk in His commandments, and to walk with Him, and you will have a victorious day, come what may. By faith in His name we walk. This is what God has before us. And there is salvation in no one else. Only in Him is salvation. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So every time you become, you start to think, oh, well, maybe it's, it's broader than what I think. It is not. There is salvation only in the name of Jesus. Remember that. Let these words be driven home to your heart. There's salvation only in Him. There is no other way except through Jesus Christ. No other way. Okay, let's turn to, to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. We know from later on in the passage that John was speaking in well, although the book of Acts only is recording the testimony of Peter, John also was speaking. The book of Acts records the testimonies primarily of two people, Peter and, and uh, Paul. But there were many other testimonies going on from the, from the other apostles. And here we see they observed the confidence both in Peter and in John. And they were speaking and they recognized them as having been with Jesus. They understood that they had been uneducated and untrained. Those words don't mean stupid, but they just had not undergone rabbinic teaching. And the same thing was said of Jesus in, in, in Luke I'm sorry, in John chapter 7, verse 15, they said the same thing of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 15, it says, um, The Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? The same thing they saw in Jesus, they saw in Peter and John. The same thing they saw in Jesus, they can see in you. They can see in you. I've had dialogues with Orthodox Jews that have gone through all this training. And we go in this dialogue, and it's so much fun, because I have no formal training, and it's so much fun to see God come through. And, and we go verses back and forth, back and forth, so much fun. And, and we actually enjoy each other, because we, we, can, we can go back and forth with verses and talk about it. And what they say brings tears to my eyes, because it's so touching. And what I say brings tears to their eyes. And so here I do, I sit with Orthodox Jews, and we're both weeping as we talk about the Scriptures together. He says that they were uneducated and untrained men. Let me tell you, you spend time with Jesus. He brings you beyond what you could be trained in. He brings you very far. And it's not just for Bible things. The Bible promises that He gives us victory in the things that are before us when we walk with Him. It says that we will have more insight than all our teachers in Psalm 119, verse 97 through about 100. That we'll have more insight than all our teachers if we walk with Him and we meditate on His Word. And all our teachers, it doesn't say all our Bible teachers, it says all our teachers, if we meditate on His Word. He will take you and He will project you much further than you ever would have gone 
if you spend time with Jesus. They recognized these men as having spent time with Jesus. They spoke like Jesus had spoken. They had heard Him for three years speaking and teaching constantly, and so they spoke and they taught like Him. You will see, if you meditate in the Scriptures and, and read these Scriptures over and over, that when you write, even when you write technical things, that passages of Scripture will come to your mind and it will be influenced. You know, I wrote a, a book on molecular electronics. And I have had people write to me and to say, I can tell by some of the things that you write in there that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Just by the way you write. It affects the way you write, the way you speak, the, the, the things that you say, the expressions that you use. It affects you. And that is a good thing. And they recognize them as having been with Jesus. And in verse 14, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So you, see, so you see what's happening. They see the man healed. They recognize him as this man who had been sitting at the gate called Beautiful for all of these years begging. And they, the question is not, has a miracle really taken place or not? That's not the question anymore. That is clear. And they even, they even concede that everyone in Israel, and we too know that a noteworthy miracle has taken place. We can't deny that. There's no denying that. We can't cover this thing up. It's already just, just blown up out there. We can't cover it up. We can't deny it. But in verse 17, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Now, this is the biggest mistake. If you want to make sure that nothing gets said by a group of people, tell them not to say it anymore. Let them know that it bothers you, that if they say it, and not to say it anymore. And it will get all the more press, right? When you try to cover something up. You know, there was this thing with the government that I was once working on, and, and, and this one group there said, don't publish it. Uh, you don't have approval to publish it. And I said, it's going to get published anyway. And so they gave approval. They said, we always give approval for things that are going to get published anyway, lest it attract too much attention to it. And, and so, you know, they, they well understand this. And so they, they, couldn't, they couldn't deny this thing. And so all they could do in verse 18, they summoned them and they commanded them not to teach or to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so this is one of the things that we have seen throughout the Scriptures and we saw it in the Gospels that there are times to obey, civil, to obey civil authority and there are few instances when we disobey. What we see, that times to disobey civil authority are when it comes to the preservation of human life. That we have multiple examples of that in the Scriptures. When it comes to receiving the Lord and here when it comes to testifying of the Lord. So should civil authorities say don't testify of the Lord, that is an instance for civil disobedience, according to the Scriptures. When it comes of receiving the Lord, and when it comes to the protection of human life. 
And so this is the occasion where, where it comes to speaking of the Lord. They're told not to stop, and they say, we cannot stop about what we have seen and heard. Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. No religious authority is going to say, oh no, listen to us rather than to God. They say, God has told us to speak this message, we must speak. Let this be drilled into your hearts as well. If God has spoken this message to speak His Word, we are to speak. And the things that bother me most in life, you know what wrenches my heart more than anything else? Is all the occasions that I've been given to speak and to testify of the Lord, and I've kept my mouth shut because of my own timidity, because of my own fear, and because of my own lack of faith. And those are the things in my life, to this day, that wrench my heart more than anything else. That when I don't testify of the Lord... I have no regrets for the times that I've spoken up and spoken of the Lord. Even when it's caused people to get really upset, I have no regrets. But the thing that I regret is when in my own timidity and my own lack of faith, I haven't spoken up. In verse 21, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle had been performed. And we learned earlier on in the chapter, he had never walked. He had been lame from, lame from his mother's womb. And so, for two reasons. There was no basis on which to punish them. There was no law against healing a man who was lame. There was no law against doing a good deed like this. And because of the people. There were crowds all around watching this trial that were glorifying God for this previously lame man who was walking, who was now walking, and because they saw the people, because there was no, no violation, they could do nothing, but they threatened them. And let me tell you what will happen in your life. Threats will come that are empty threats because of your testimony of the gospel. Threats will come. I can give you numerous examples in my life. And don't let threats deter you. Don't let them stop you. You know, one of the things that came at me recently is, is, is uh, one guy said, I'm concerned, Jim, about the students that you influence because of the, the, the uh, inequality in power. Because when you speak to them as a professor on campus, there's this inequality in power and they have no recourse. And I said, I don't preach in my class. When students come to me, I speak. And when I'm invited into settings, I speak. And they said, because of this inequality of power, we're very concerned. And then another professor heard him and picked it up as his mantra and wrote me a letter, I'm very concerned about the inequality of power. So now he had his term. You know, because they were thinking, what is the accusation here? What could they get? I said, okay, enough of this, because I had gotten three letters about this. I said, enough. No more straw men. Enough. Bring forth from the graduates of Rice University or any student on campus that has felt pressured by Jim Tour because of an inequality of power, bring that person forth. But until you do, keep your mouth shut. And then, when you seek them out, I want you to also bring forth all the students that have been blessed by Jim Tour that have graduated and on this campus. Ask them that question too. And when you do that, I demand that you also bring forth the ones that have been bothered by you versus the ones that have been blessed by you. 
Bring them. Bring them forth. But until then, keep your mouth shut. Guess what? I'm still waiting for them to do anything. There's nothing. Their mouths have been closed. Because most threats are absolutely empty threats. And believers get a little bit of accusation and we're like, Oh, I've upset somebody. That's got to be the worst sin. You know, upsetting somebody is the worst sin, isn't it? You know, because they're accusing me of intolerance. And, you know, that is the worst sin, isn't it? Isn't it? If you upset somebody, I mean, that's, that's not our calling to upset anyone. Look in, in Luke, in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, reading from verse 42, Jesus is proclaiming a bunch of woes on Pharisees. We'll just pick it up in verse 44, Luke chapter 11, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say such things, you insult us too. So Jesus just proclaimed seven woes upon the Pharisees, and a lawyer comes up to him and says, You know, when you say that, you insult us. Not just offend us, but insult us. And Jesus then replies, Oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. You That was not the intent of my ministry. My father didn't send me here to insult. No, look what he says in reply. In reply to what this guy just said, he says, But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it is is your fathers who kill them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was those who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason... The wisdom of God says, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and and some they will persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering." And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting to kill him. So, did Jesus say, oh, whoa, I'm sorry about that? He said, oh, you want to know, did that insult you? How about this? Because he was speaking the word of God. And if you testify of God, there will be threats, but it should not deter you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the truth of Your Word. And Father, I pray that each person here is able to take that test of 1 John to know whether they have eternal life. And Father, if they go through and they take that test and question it, that they would fall on their knees and ask You to forgive them. And then You will come into their lives. Father, I pray that no one here would fail this test, but they would come before You and ask You to fill their lives. That they would remember that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which a man may be saved. And Father, I pray that You would give them boldness and let them speak as having been with Jesus. And I lift them to You and ask Your grace upon their young lives in the name of Jesus.
Amen.